Hello and welcome to Power Reflections, a proud member of the Doof Network where we reflect on Wabo's most trim work as it releases. I'm Ruben Morehouse. And I'm Elliot Diebold. And before we get into the chapters this week, a uh, quick note, fan art contest. The fan art contest is still running. The theme is the power of the holidays and you have until the 4th of January to get your submissions in. Yep. So, you know, get drawing. Yep. Get, get drawing, power of the holidays, <laughs> do your... Uh, uh, worm or ward or packed or pale only themed fan art and um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> we'll uh, be talking more about this when it approaches the submission close date. Yeah. Now let's get into cutting class 6.8 we're in Lucy's perspective again and uh, she's continuing the ritual recoiling as the earring gets her to demonstrate how she would have acted in past situations if she had its power. We start with a scene where some classmates are being real jerks um and the first line of this chapter is heads up the bitch marches uh in this kind of italics which signifies that it's being you know magically overheard and what a what a strong way to get us into the chapter and immediately set up going to be doing more eavesdropping and people are going to be shit talking lucy um <laughs> we're we're right back in her kind of crusader headspace here yeah you're right because that I, italics thing had been set up so strongly yes. last chapter that you you sort of immediately uh understand where we're you immediately going grok what we're being you know what what at least this first part of this chapter is going to be about yeah yeah exactly and um yeah i mean i like i really like the writing here because something that gets uh established very quickly is that like we're seeing two scenes that are sort of happening concurrently so like you know there's obviously the original version of the scene and then we've got like what lucy would do now with the earring um and I was just really impressed by how this was written because I was basically never confused as to what was happening, despite two similar-ish scenes happening in overlap. Mm. Um, like I, th- I just thought that was really impressive writing. That you know, it's like it opens with this sort of repetition of Lucy who did hear, and then explains something that's like Lucy who didn't hear, and you're like, what? And then it's like, then Wabo just sort of actually does explain it and say, oh, yeah, there's two Lucys. And, and then from <laughs> there, it, it's just juggled really well so that you get it. Yeah, it's a it's a, a strange little premise, but it's – I actually think the fact that it's at times, like, a bit disorienting is something that we've seen Wabo do before where he lets it be a bit disorienting so that you can feel more akin to the headspace that the characters are in. And I'm assuming this is disorienting for Lucy as well, so – um yeah, it kind of plays into it more than it stumps us, I think, which is good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, like, obviously, you know, in this scene, for the vast majority of it, it barely plays out any differently because Lucy, like, it's, yep. it's kind of proving the earrings point about how Lucy always kind of knew because... Yeah, she, she already knew all this stuff. Like, all this information was yep. already accessible to her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so like, the majority of this barely changes and it's only really at the end where she sort of comforts verona more and offers to help verona out more and that's when Mm. verona kind of leaves and and there's this bit where you know the kids are like trying to pull verona away from lucy and and that's sort of where the earring gets to come in and be like oh you know is this really what you want yeah and lucy gets to say yes and maybe we'll talk about that more at the end Mm. yeah I, i even like even the difference between these two scenes it doesn't even necessarily feel to me like it's because Lucy has the earring. I mean, I guess it is in mm. part, but it's almost also or more so just the fact that if you get to do moments of your life over again, you with with you know later contextual knowledge, you might just do things slightly differently, right? 
Yeah, or yeah, I I agree. It's almost more of a statement of where Lucy is now. Like I think she yeah. is a stronger. You know, this is what she wanted the earring to do was to enhance herself, and this is yeah. almost the earring sort of saying, "Yeah, I'm like, yeah, you're, like the only difference here is she just sort of doesn't seed the ground and and stands up to them, and that's mm. that's more to do with her than the earring specifically because it's mm. just enhancing her." Yeah, definitely, I agree. Um, I also wait. I, I love we still get to do a bit of characterization of Verona here as well, because we get a snapshot of Verona pre her parents' divorce. Mm. And you can see how she's like happier, mm-hmm. but also like clearly, you know, things weren't perfect at her home beforehand anyway, because she's very stressed about what she's done to these genes and how her parents will react. Yeah. Yeah. It was always a bit of a tense family home situation seems to be the, I guess the message. Which makes sense. Yeah. Like, you can already sort of see inklings of where her parents are now. It just seems like it, it wasn't that bad yet, or, or like, you know, the dam hadn't broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's like, you know, her mom's already working too much to really help her with stuff. Her dad is, like, just wearing the same clothes all the time. It's like you can, it's one of those twenty twenty hindsight things where it's like, oh, no, the, the warning signs are all there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It was always... <laughs> going to be a bit of a worrying situation at home, I guess. Yeah. Um. Uh, and so the last thing I wanted to say on the, on this little section was just how cinematic it is. Like, there's the bit where, uh, so like after this this scene where she sort of uh comforts Verona and, and declares to the earring that she does want to hear this stuff even if it's harder. Um. The the earring sort of is like, okay, so let's decide some more stuff about me, and then let's go of Lucy and like Lucy drops and there's no ground beneath her feet and it. it it, it's very cinematic, like dreamscape-esque. I, I just really loved it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's very visual, um, which is nice, again, to help tether us in this kind of abstract ritual. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, Lucy gets dropped into some kind of horror movie scene set in an office building where she basically has to avoid these murderous office workers. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is this is very fun. I feel like of all the scenarios we see, this is kind of the most just the earring being like, struggle. Yeah, here's just a challenge. How do you deal with it? <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's interesting too. Like, uh, you know, I could see how this this scene, where, which at first just seemed like, oh, it's a random horror movie scene. But it, like when I sort of thought about it, like, I, I don't know if Lucy's really talked much about what she sees her like, life being when she's grown up like she's mentioned she she wants to get married and all that but like what what job she sees herself having or that sort of thing mm. um and i i definitely at least in my head view like an office building like the one she ends up in is this kind of ultimate embodiment of like the man and the system uh so yeah like this being set in like a office where the other people in the office are like you know targeting lucy i I can sort of see where that's coming from yeah maybe uh thinking about it though i don't think these people are meant to represent office workers because we do get these like dead office workers as well um i don't know maybe you're right though maybe it is a bit of like the earring playing into the fears it doesn't seem super strong enough to draw any concrete conclusions from though yeah that's fair i mean also we know lucy just like watches horror movies so you know the earring probably has lots of crazy stuff to pull from she's also basically lived a few horror movies at this point Mm, yeah true (laughs) um the thing i like about this scene is we mentioned the bodies before and it starts out feeling like it's kind of 
you know, because we know this is fictional. I mean, it doesn't feel like there's any super strong stakes in this scene. But then Lucy finds these seven dead bodies piled up, and I'm just kind of like, oh, this is going to be horrifying if she gets caught. So it, it, even though it's still, I guess, imaginary, it's um, it, it really ratchets it up in a nice way. Yeah, and I mean, in this world, you can never be sure, right? Like, you know, there's always a chance that she could just end up grievously injured in this ritual, and mm. that will, like, hurt her for the rest of her life. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I, 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 and like, I'm, I'm curious, did you get like paths sort of vibes from all these little vignettes? Like mm. it's different, but like, you know, I could sort of see these as being like similar to the paths in, in kind of what they are cosmologically in the world of pale. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's just a kind of a different space to be in where you have to deal with challenges. I mean, it's not strictly the same as Paz, but there is definitely these kind of overlapping stuff like this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I guess there's also kind of comparisons you could make to the Alcazar stuff. Like it's, 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 there's similarities to maybe Alcazaring into yourself. Maybe. Mm. I mean, just all these things are so fun. Maybe they all kind of relate just because they're really awesome ways to turn yeah, concepts into fun. spaces. They're all just fun stuff, yeah. 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 Cool. Um so this this little vignette ends with a with Lucy kind of hiding in the ceiling. She ends up stabbing and killing one of these, you know, hunters. Um and apparently that's enough of a kind of response to for the earring to get whatever answer it wants out of this scene and, and it goes to the next scene. But I'm kind of thinking like with the latest vignettes, we we get clearer things that Lucy is deciding on, whereas this one doesn't necessarily have that. I'm kind of curious what you think the earring might be getting out of this scene in particular. I, I took this one to directly relate to one of the things it talks about is getting sharper edges, and obviously in this vignette she uses it to stab the guy first before switching to one of the knives she pulls out of his head. mm um, so I, I thought this was probably the moment where it decided it should have those slightly sharper edges in order to be better for stabbing. Interesting. Whereas if, if Lucy had never reached for it and gotten the kill or gotten killed, like that mm. might've, you know, given it the rounder edges or something. Mm. I guess something that we see later on again is Lucy uses it as a weapon again to stab Paul, right? Um, yeah, kind of. Yeah. So you're right. Maybe it's, uh. It's taking shape as something that Lucy can use as a weapon in a last ditch kind of scenario. I like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Lucy stabs a, a, a guy in the neck with, uh, or stabs him with the earring, and then grabs his knife, right, and sta- stabs him in the neck. Um, yeah. And then is transported into the future into her own hypothetical wedding. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, this is this is like a much more fun uh, vignette. Uh, and I love all the, there's like all these little details. Cause this is basically like a hypothetical. The earring has constructed from like what Lucy thinks the future could be like. Mm. Um, and it's like, I love, yeah, all the, like, you know, Avery is kind of run off and she's happy and she's affiliated with glamour and the, you know, stuff there. I was like, okay, yeah, this doesn't make sense. And then, um, like Alyssa is there and she's still only labeled as Booker's girlfriend, which I just thought was funny because Lucy's subconscious won't let her marry uh, Booker yet. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I thought that was funny when you pulled it out. Just uh, 
<laughs> Lucy is not has not given the internal seal of approval to Alyssa. Yeah, because like, I, you know, maybe this is unfair because you know, like at this point they would have been dating for like over ten years. I yeah, definitely. I mean, if um, she's still around, they're probably pretty serious. Yeah, and and you know, marriage isn't the end game for all couples. Like you know, I know couples who have been dating for like twenty years and they just don't want to get married for whatever reason. Um. That's not the vibe I took out of this specifically. Mm. Like, like you know, that could be the case, but I'm already just just like in Lucy's hypothetical, like happily ever after wedding. Alyssa isn't yet married to Booker because she hasn't passed that hurdle yet. Mm. Yeah, true. So yeah, it, it's a fun scene. I mean, this this one really. I mean, the last one we get a bit of a picture of what's going on, but this one we really get a stronger picture, specifically what the earring is doing, which is pushing Lucy and forcing her to make difficult decisions about who she actually wants to be, right? Um, and then obviously yeah. as a result, it's kind of playing off of her and indicating kind of where those decisions might lead. Yeah, I think this is really fun because it, it's sort of the last vignette, Like, and you talked about this, like how it just sort of ends when she stabs the guy and you're like, okay, so what does this mean? And that's kind of the one that really starts to get it into your head that, oh, these aren't about winning or losing. These are about Lucy making state um and and so in this one like obviously we get her doing a lot of that uh but my favorite one is like she decides that actually she's not going to let verona go like the the earring kind of challenges her by presenting this idea that verona is not yet at the wedding Mm. um and i was like freaking out i was like oh no what does lucy think is going to happen but uh yeah lucy just it's kind of a challenge and lucy gets to say no fuck off like i'm going to keep verona that that you know someone who helped build you like in my life yeah yeah it's great stuff um yeah so uh, there's a few challenges like this right the verona one where she which she resolves by seeding the idea that no verona at least helped make the dress so she's definitely a part of this a part of my life even if maybe weddings aren't her speed sure well i, I think by the end verona is there because lucy sort of says something like is she here yet oh yes true or something yeah yeah um it kind of has this dream logic right where things can happen of their own accord but you can like think things into existence as well which is a fun vibe yeah Um, well and i love how that extends to lucy a little bit as well like there's part of her that just she's got that dream logic thing happening where you know how you just kind of accept things that are happening in dreams like oh yeah this mm. is my life i'm like a 20 year old who's getting married yeah um and and it's it's like you know then you sort of wake up and you're like no i'm not what was i thinking um it's like lucy is kind of aware that she's in the ritual but also like she seems to get suckered in a little bit so that she she doesn't challenge it so much Mm. yeah yeah um yeah you're right i guess i guess it is that vibe where there's probably an aspect to it that lucy's thinking about where if she challenges every single thing that also presumably has impacts right like sometimes you have to not challenge something otherwise you're just the person who challenges every little piece, you know? I, I suspect well, that there's... Kind of, mm. That kind of puts her against the ritual and against the earring, which yes, wouldn't be exactly. a good thing to do. Which is probably not what you want. Um, yeah. Yeah, so uh, she has decided that her partner knows about the practice. She's decided that she will seemingly always wear her implement, her earring, when she's not using it to stab somebody. Um, <laughs> yeah, good decisions by Lucy, I think. Yeah, I agree. I, I love when her husband comes in and uh avery kind of insists they can't look at each other because traditions are important mm-hmm. um because I, I just love this as a way to keep the husband like identity free because it's just sort of like um I, you can't look at him so you know like w- let's keep his identity out of it he's 
he's a construct for yes. this scenario. Yes. He's not an actual person. And uh, this is such a clever way by Wildbo to let us have a scene with him, but like have an excuse for Lucy not to look at him. Mm. Yeah, definitely. A, a way for Lucy to not have to think about it as well, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, like it just in and out of the story. It's a great, great way to explain away not, not giving him a face. Mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so back to what you sort of said, like Lucy makes these three decisions. And I feel like two of these just feel kind of objectively good to me, which is telling your partner about the practice and like actually being open with them. Yeah. Uh, and to like deciding that Verona is going to stay in her life. Yep. I'm I'm less decided on always wearing the implement. Mm. I like the sort of imagery of like no rest for the virtuous that she kind of has going. Like she will always be fighting. She's not going <laughs> to yeah. slack off. And that explicitly comes up later. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll talk about this then too. But like, you know, I also just worry for her like own stress levels and mental health uh, with that kind of attitude. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess we can touch on this later when the ring explicitly calls it up as something that she does. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Um, yeah, so I guess the ring then pushes this drawback of her deciding to keep the practice a permanent fixture of her life and talks about how uh, this will lead Lucy to be more embroiled in the practice in her relationships, I guess, and talk about how, you know, the, the, I guess the twist in air quotes that the ring puts forward is that uh, Lucy is getting married at least initially for political reasons, although she and her uh, fiance seem to have some genuine connection. Yeah. I, I, I felt like this was part of the test, like the earring after she commits to wearing it, then the earrings like, you know, wants to continue pushing. Yeah. And it's sort of like, yeah, okay, well, this is a political marriage and Lucy kind of reinforces she has feelings for him as well. And is, you know, so that's sort of her saying, I'm not going to do it for just that. Yes, like, exactly. She's, she's going to marry for love. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, she, she refuses to cede ground, uh, which again is, is, you know, sort of her thing that was yep, established. Classically. Um, yeah. So yeah, I saw this as a challenge. I, I it'd be interesting to think about, how that would work in real life, like how Lucy would respond to the idea that that's something she could, she should consider. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. I, I don't think we're ever going to see Lucy actually get married in the story. Right. No. <laughs> but I think it's interesting to think about this and think about, have Lucy think about this being the way that her life might be leading on its current trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is like, a character study in its like rawest form because in text it's literally the character doing a journey of self-discovery yeah uh and, and deciding what parts of themselves they want to enhance yeah um so yeah uh that vignette ends and we get into the next vignette which is a very intense scene for lucy to deal with the night when paul left um uh, yeah uh, <laughs> this scene it's so frustrating to listen to this conversation, <laughs> right? Because Paul is just 100% being the worst. He's just completely not listening to what Jazz is saying. And she's she's being so good, like, giving him so much leeway. She's so patient. Extending so much, exactly, right? Extending so much patience toward he, towards him. And he's just being such a huge asshole and just, like, completely ignoring her. Um, so, yeah. Two thumbs up, Paul. You're a piece of shit. <laughs> I, this reminds me of something that came up in like We've Got Ward a bit, which is like, you know, this stuff that is kind of relatable or benignly evil 
kind of gets to you more than like you know evil giant supernatural monsters like in like we have in this story yeah the human stuff gets to you more right yeah yeah like you know and and verona's dad is another like great example of this like you know people hate verona's dad a lot more than they do like the fucking evil monsters that have been introduced and it's because verona's dad gets you on a very human level yes makes Um, you very mad and it's not like a mad where it's oh it's this evil villain and we're gonna go take them down it's a mad where the whatever possible clean solution there might be it's never going to be as clean as just being able to take this person down you know like there's no solution that will completely holistically solve this problem well yeah because because what frustrates you about paul in in this scene is like i can totally picture someone doing this in a Mm -hmm. conversation in fact like if i'm being perfectly honest like when i was younger i was probably this person in like less serious conversations but like yeah I think it's a very easy mindset for you to fall into. And that's sort of the whole point Lucy's making this chapter and we'll get there. But like, yeah, God, it's just so frustrating that he just won't move out of his own goddamn headspace. And like pretty much everything Jazz is saying is like, please, if you could just see it from my point of view. And then he's always like, no, give me a simple solution to this. And she's like, I know, I right? Like, because he, she says, hey, there's no easy solution to this because of this. And he's like, I'm not going to listen to you until you give me a simple solution. Yeah. And that's just his defense the entire time. <laughs> I mean, not even using the word defense is wrong. It's because it's not a yeah. defense. He's not defending himself. He's just ignoring what she's saying. But Lucy, Lucy makes the point like later in her own internal monologue that he wanted to lose this argument. And you can kind of see that because yeah. like, there's one point where he's like, he basically says to Jazz, so, you know, are you calling me a racist? Call me a racist. And she's like, if you're not going to listen to me, that's kind of what you're doing. And then he's sort of like, how dare you call me a racist? I like, know, Jesus. Fuck off. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, he's an um, iron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, very good writing here, because I think this just got onto everyone's skin that I've seen. Like, whenever I see a live read of this chapter, people are just losing their minds at Paul. Yep. Um, so yeah, I guess the decisions that Lucy has to make in this scene, the things that she confronts are one, whether she actually continues to listen to the scene or not, whether she goes back to bed Two, whether she confronts Paul or not. And three, how she kind of reacts to her mother, right? Um, Mm. Lucy doesn't go back to bed or, or, you know, the earring offers her the choice to just hide with Booker and she turns it down. Uh, she confronts Paul and again, using her earring kind of minorly inches him good, deserves it. But then she kind of interacts with her mother and her mother, you know, kind of puts on her brave face for Lucy. And Lucy thinks about a response, but doesn't say it. She thinks, oh, it's not your fault, mum. Like he wanted to lose that conversation, et cetera, what we've discussed. But she doesn't actually say that to her mother, right? And I'm, I'm interested mm. to get your read on that, that vibe. Uh, yeah. Like, do you, think, do you think she should have? Do you think she could have? I don't know. This might be one of those scenarios where just not saying anything is the right because it's so raw. I don't know. Mm. I mean, this is that scene. I mean, like this was one of the first things we ever got introduced to Lucy with, right? Is it was like in her very first chapter, she compared the look on John's face to this moment with her yes. mom. Yes. Um. So, like, this is sort of a very formative scene for her, and maybe there's a thing where it's like she just can't imagine it going any differently because it's so to her mm. um yeah i don't know mm. yeah you're right maybe she can't yet break out of the mold of like the the parent child relationship defining their relationship i guess yeah yeah I, 
again, I just, I don't know. Like, I don't know what she could say there that would actually help. Like, I don't think her mum was at a point right there that, you know, saying anything. It's, like, it's just, you've just got to be there at that point. Mm. I don't know. I yeah. mean, the, the bit where she uses her earring as a weapon um, against Paul, because he kind of, like, puts his hand on her face, and so she just squeezes his hand to sort of stab him with the earring, which is, like, an interesting... You know, it's very different to pulling it off and using it as an offensive weapon. It's almost more of a, like, a defense or, like, a thorn sort of thing. Like, I yeah, I don't know. Mm. It's just, it's, it's, it's very interesting, a different imagery. Mm. Yeah, you're right, because it's not... Like, she's not even really trying to achieve anything by attacking him. She's just venting a bit of frustration, right? Um, yeah. And well, it's, it's almost like, it, it's almost like just literally spreading some of her pain. I'm trying to think of a better way of phrasing yeah. it. You know, it's like, like he sort of, he, you know, she's kind of cutting through his bullshit of like pretending that he's sorry or whatever and just sort of using it as a bit of an extension of herself to inflict or reciprocate some of the pain he's inflicting on her. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. I wonder. I wonder what, because we discussed seeing her earring used kind of as a weapon or as a very personal kind of way to jab somebody with herself, right? Yeah. Um, I wonder what imp- impact that will have on it. We'll have to see, I guess. We'll see. I want to see when she does this for the first time, you know, in in real life. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um. um also, what do you think of, like, I thought it was interesting that she's kind of content to just give Booker a pass. Like, let him sort of stay like, in bed. Yeah, she's like, are you going to come with me? And he's like, no, I've got a test tomorrow. Mm. Um, and I would have thought Earring Lucy would have kind of been like, no, you should come. Yeah, interesting. You're right. I didn't I didn't clock that, but you're right. I think, hmm, I think I would say it's consistent with Lucy's character that she doesn't necessarily force other people to fight her battles for her right hmm. so maybe that's i don't know well yeah but, maybe but that's usually kind of she, what it's saying yeah i mean she, but she usually judges the people who aren't fighting the good fight like she expects well, i feel like she usually expects other good people to step up um and she thinks so highly of booker i thought it was interesting that she didn't note that he didn't hear mm. I don't know. maybe i'm reading too much into this moment this is just meant to be the earring giving her an out Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> um so yeah, uh Lucy continues to deal with more scenes and the earring questions a pattern that has been established. Lucy keeps fighting the good fight even as it continues to wear her down, and the earring asks why. Hmm. And I'm not gonna read the whole quote that's sitting in the notes in front of you, Ruben, because mm-hmm. it's very long. It's a long one. Um, yep. But I just I love this moment where it's almost like feeding off of the the Paul stuff that just happened. Uh, Lucy sort of explains why she wants the earring or why she wants to hear this stuff. And it's because someone can tell you all the answers and it doesn't matter if you're not listening. Like how you figure stuff out isn't just through yourself, but like, you know, it, it's it's hearing other people say the good and the bad. And that's why she needs to keep listening because that's how she helps people. That's how, mm. you know, she hurts them. But, like, you know, it's like that's how you get better and i love that Mm. as a a focus on self-improvement that isn't just thinking about yourself yeah you're right it's it's she's kind of defining this way that she wants to be helpful and it's her eavesdrop earring i think when we first heard about it it was oh great this is a tool to spy on your enemies right but it's not just that it's 
being able to be more attentive to the things that are hurting her friends as well, right? Which I think is great. Yeah, well, and not just the bad, but the good. Like, you know, yeah. it's yeah, going to help her focus on, on where people say the right. You're right. And part of this is the earring asking her the question, okay, who loves you? Who cares about you? You know, yeah. I am now a tool for you to feel that and, and, and notice that more. Yeah, like, like, you know, as an example of it working in a good way, like in practice, I could see, you know, the next time they were in a Brewster class, if that sort of stuff ever happens again, and, and another student is kind of, you know, bitching under their breath about Bristow. Lucy will hear that and we can give that student, like, check marks for being a good person because they hate Bristow. Yeah, true. Or even just, uh, you know, people being like, oh, shit, Lucy pulled a cool thing in Durashay's class, you know, where um, mm. that might not be something that they're comfortable saying to her face. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, Lucy kind of through this challenge reaffirms her core values. She wants to listen, help and grow. And it's a good way to assert who she is. And I love that this, like, you know, we've raised the question of Lucy's identity and who she wants to be and her kind of defining for herself who she wants to be all the way back through her entire stuff. But, you know, more, more obviously things like the Fae dueling lessons and stuff like that. Um, and this ritual is just a great way for Lucy to, to make those decisions very tangibly and actively about who she wants to be. I think it's just a great, it's just great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, especially because, yeah, I just love this concept that growing yourself doesn't always just have to be an inwardly facing thing. Yeah. Um, it Because it, it, this is a story, I think, that is mostly dealing with the ideas of community and cooperation, like how do people work together? Mm. And, and Lucy is sort of defining her stance on it here, which is like we listen to each other. And yeah go from there um yeah which is just like it's pretty good strat yep um, definitely top strats top tier i mean i what i do what, what i also like about this story though is like i feel like verona and avery have slightly different takes on it like you know i they obviously listen to each other but like you know i, I feel like that's why this story has three protagonists because if it's a story about how we work together mm. you sort of have three people who are different and work differently and you talk about how different people work together mm. um and I can't wait to sort of get these sorts of moments from Avery and Verona, like maybe mm. not so concretely or, or like, you know, on exactly the same topic, but sort of learning about how, how they work with people and how it plays off what Lucy's established here. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess summing up Lucy's character, she defines it as, I want to be a person that's easier to love and scary to be against, which is just a great single line summary of who Lucy is. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very Lucy line. It's good stuff. Yeah. I want to she says that line. That's, I think, when the uh, earring sort of, you know, the incorporated earring like fuses into her. Yes, it finally merges with her. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which, again, like is a very nice visual uh sort of thing that's happening and then that's just such a great line to sort of end this character journey on because it's yeah. so lucy yeah it's perfect um and so yeah the the episode closes with the uh, lucy merging with the earring lucy and uh then we get a, a tiny brief teaser on what has happened while they're away which is that bristow has seemingly won the war in about five minutes flat <laughs> i mean it does sound like it took a good chunk of the weekend but it was quite decisive and yes relatively bloodless yeah a, a decisive victory for bristow um yeah. and we shall touch on that in the next chapter <laughs> yeah no, no point no, <laughs> no point, point discussing it here i mean here. did you have an initial reaction to this what 
anything that's worth discussing. My initial reaction uh, was kind of like, what? <laughs> that can't be right, basically. Um, I I wasn't surprised in the end because uh, I, I sort of touched on this in my live read. I actually came into last week's episode and I was about to write the notes like, oh, I'm pretty sure Alexander will win just because mm. it would be crazy if he didn't. That would change so much. Yeah. And then I remembered all the other Wildbo stories I'd read <laughs> and I deleted those notes. Yeah. Because, like, it's changing yeah, so these... much is obviously a bit within Wildbo's, you know, modus operandi. Yeah. yeah, completely fucking over the status quo. It's very Wildbo. So then, yeah, when it turns out Bristow sort of won, I was like, well, yeah, okay, this actually makes sense. Yeah. Um, and it's going to change so much. And I don't think my ideas on it have changed that much from 6.9. So mm-hmm. I, I like let's talk about that. Like maybe at the end of that we can sort of talk about like what we think because we only sort of get a few extra details in six point nine, but the the large picture remains kind of the same. Mm. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's get into it. Cutting class six point nine from Avery's perspective um, starts with the trio stepping outside and trying to figure out what has just happened. Uh, yeah, I love that it's raining as they go outside. Um, Especially because my first thought on this was, wait, has it been raining for like the whole week since they're on the phone with Edith? Like, poor Edith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, hopefully not. Uh, she would be quite bummed out, presumably, if <laughs> that's the case. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, Avery makes the point that it feels like they're stepping out onto an extinguished battlefield, which is is apt. But I kind of was thinking about it, and it feels like they've jumped forward about you know, hundred years in time, and there's this great event that took place, this apocalyptic event of Bristow taking over the school, and everyone only talks about it in hushed whispers. And you know, Avery uh, and the trio are desperately trying to figure out what actually happened to this event, so they can kind of at least comprehend it, if not start to undo some of it. Um, but yeah, it just they, they just can't. You know, it, it was only two days ago, and nobody's telling them anything <laughs> that happened. Yeah, there's real aftermath vibes yes in in all this like there's almost no one around those that are in these like small close groups they're very wary or they're very aggressive like it, it kind of feels post-apocalyptic almost. yeah like, you'd see this being the setting of a zombie apocalypse movie um almost it's uh yeah i i mean yeah wait again the fact that it's raining like i can fully believe that that's the spirits pulling some bullshit because it just feels like the right weather Mm. And I feel like this is the world where, in a place that's as rich with magic as this school, the spirits are just like, yeah, you know, this is after a battle, so it needs to be raining, so the Kennedys know that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's just playing into the overall vibe of this scenario. Yeah, um, uh, I I also love that like Avery quickly compares how she and Verona are going, like after three days, kind of locked in a room mostly. Mm. Um, mostly just because like Avery feels really gross and you know like she needs to take start taking care of herself again and she just sort of notes Verona's just fine like yep. you know <laughs> Verona's body is pretty used to not having uh, a routine or getting taken care of uh so she's just you know about the same as she was whereas Avery you know is is sort of very fit takes care of herself when she's falling apart <laughs> yeah really not happy with it um yeah, uh, Snowdrop, of course, seems to also be doing fine. Seems to have spent <laughs> this uh, weekend doing the best possible thing she could have, which is just sleeping all day. <laughs> we, 
which is good. I mean, I worry for Snowdrop sleeping because they're often dragging her around during the day, but she's nocturnal, and so she's always out at night as well. Mm. I've always worried she's not getting enough sleep. Yeah, uh, probably. Um, so yeah, we like. I think we should touch on the fact that nobody seems to be telling them what's going on. People are intentionally being, you know, mysterious about it. I, I kind of like it. It gives this vibe of like. It gives it a bit of vibe that it's actually not yet over. Like people aren't willing to comment on it because it's still kind of taking place to some extent. Yeah, totally. Um, and I guess we'll get to that later because while one side is keen to claim victory, it it definitely feels like there's still stuff going on in this battle, right? Uh, yeah, maybe a little. What? Yeah, let's let's wait till the end to talk about that. Okay. Um, yeah, we'll get to that later, I suppose. Uh, so yeah, the, the trio stumble around the empty campus, uh, seeing very little people until they come across uh, Timon caring for his familiar Dreg. Um, yeah. So obviously, uh, apparently, Dreg copped it. Um, and, uh, like I like how they they start to have a conversation with Timon because obviously, you know, we've we've seen him before. Um, and there's a lot to talk about here, but the first one I wanted to pull out was uh, he he kind of gets really impressed by how specialized their site is mm. um and he sort of says usually that stuff is like hard to do to train yourself or it's like yeah. pricey high level technique yeah which is just you know again another reminder that the canateers are weirdly powerful um but also one of the things timon says here is uh he would usually have to tap uh his black gutter spirit for a site like that and whenever he does that it you know channels into him so it's sort of a risk it reminded me of like matthew with the doom like where everything you sort of do when you're getting the power from that thing is it, it gets its claws further into you mm. um and that jumped out to me because i was sort of thinking like the canateers don't seem to have anything like that right like we see a lot of people who in this world whose power is you know very defined by what they're interacting with like yes or where they get their power from it, it sort of shapes them yeah um, but the Kenneteers seemingly just kind of get this free power on tap and it doesn't change them, at least as far as we're aware. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a few possibilities for that, right? One is just the fact that they've tapped so directly into willing others is a new paradigm that's just way stronger. It's a real, like, you know, laughter is 10 times more powerful than screams moment from Monsters, <laughs> Inc., right? Um, the other option yeah. is because they awakened as a group that potentially is kind of spreading out any adverse effects as well um and well, presumably both those things in concert mean makes them as powerful as they are i, I think it might sort of be the the uh, the other way around where it's because they're getting it from all the others of Kenneth. so it's like True. yes it's not the the black gutter or the doom that's infecting them it's this kind of mixture of all the things which kind of nulls it out and just turns it into clean into, power yeah clean clean renewable resource yeah, um, exactly. Or and, especially, it might even be going through Kennet, like because the others give power to Kennet, right? And then, as the practitioners of Kennet, they kind of get the power. So that that buffer of getting filtered, their power from yeah. from the town and from their role. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm assuming there's going to be some not hidden, but just emerging consequences that come from this that we haven't fully seen yet. Um, yeah, in terms of you know their power and, and the, the potential downsides to it, uh, but I guess we will see that as the story continues. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
uh, cool. So yeah, uh, <laughs> I want to point out one moment from this conversation that just made me laugh a huge amount, which is just like they're talking about time and time and Timon, whatever is kind of talking about uh, their house um, and the fact that you know uh, who is it? Georgia is that the name of the younger sister? Um, yeah, is having a really rough time. And mentions the house and how she wants to go back there, and and Verona is like, "Ooh, your house! Ooh, how big is it? How big is it? Ooh, is it a, a domain?" And it's just so tactless that it cracks <laughs> me up that Verona has has just whiffed on that so hard. Uh, it's yeah, classic. I love how Lucy has to elbow her and just sort of straight up says, uh, "Remember empathy?" Like, yeah, she's that Verona. Thing. Yeah, um, it's hilarious. God, Alexander Junior over here. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it's it's good. Like, I I really like this this moment where Tymon sort of refuses to like talk to them about how Drake got injured. Mm. Um, because it's sort of like Lucy's like, oh, how did he get injured? And she clearly like sort of wants to help, but Tymon's like, well, you just sort of refuse to tell us what your deal is. So you, I hope you'll understand if I I'm sort of the same. And she's like, yeah, I mean, I don't like that, but fair. Yeah. Um, and. Because, yeah, I mean, it's tough. Like, we've just sort of been talking about, you know, how how cool it is that the Kenneteers can kind of work together and, and you know, Lucy does her listening and they get this power for free that lets them do stuff. But then there's, you know, as soon as we start interacting with other practitioners, suddenly there has to be all these little guards up. Mm. And, like, yeah. This is still a, a relatively good interaction, but both sides kind of just by the nature of how practitioners interact have to hold things back. Mm. Yeah. Um yeah, it's kind of like the, this is a, one of the most friendly conversations we've seen with a, just a random neutral party that isn't like Nicolette or Zed, right? Um, yeah. And it's just sad that there's always this literal wall between it, right? Mm. Yeah, it is. Like, and that's, I, I mean, I think that sort of stuff is kind of the core problem as to why this people in this world can't work together well. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, I mean, it's the in-universe reason for, for this. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, but I still trust that our characters will manage to unite everyone in, in happy harmony. Yeah, I, 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 but the problem is, is if you try to do that and, and have everyone be open, all it takes is one dickhead bad faith actor to screw everyone over. Mm. Like, it's, it's such an easy thing to ruin. So it's not that simple, unfortunately. I don't know. Mm. I'm interested to see where it might go. Yeah. Um, so during this conversation, Jarvis and Silas, who are two Bristow loyalists, come over and basically just start throwing their weight around. Yeah, just sort of blatantly like bullying everyone and like coercing uh, this sense of like you have to be Team Bristow or die. Mm-hmm. Hundred percent. It feels like that. It's get on board or get lost, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, we find out here, and we'll touch on this later, I guess. But we find out that America, uh, what's her surname? America Ted. Ted, that's it, uh, got expelled. And this immediately is strange to me because she, she didn't seem like an Alexander loyalist or anything. She just seemed kind of chaotic. But we'll, as we'll <laughs> learn later, this is a very interesting thing that happened. And we don't really have a good explanation for why. So I'm assuming this is going to play into something important later. But it's so strange. We, we get a hint at their motivation later um because that has to do with liberty and having her rise to the family because i guess she's more controllable but that feels like a 
the the reaction. I guess let's just jump to talking about this now because why not? What happens sure. is, from what it seems like, is they basically decide that they're gonna take America down, expel her, and then attack her, right? And she has no real recourse except to bail. Um, and it's that's such an extreme reaction to take for potentially manipulating a sister that doesn't necessarily feel like she would be easy to manipulate. I don't know, like what I, yeah I, yeah i guess it doesn't does it feels like there must be more going on here i i don't know i think this is just like like brusso is encouraging this bullshit tribalism mm, true uh on his side and i think this is just a bit of a side effect of that like because especially like the teds are you know as as these sort of as you said chaotic like goblin things like they, they were never going to fall in line yeah. So, like, I think I think that's probably where where it comes in. Yeah. Like, I couldn't I could never see the goblins, you know, just being productive members of a cult. They they always sort of have to fight authority. Mm. Um. I mean, because you know, it's not a surprise that it was like a one of the goblin princesses and one of these Hennigers that managed to get expelled because they seem like the easy groups to trick into doing something violent. Yeah. True. Um. Because mm-hmm. like one of my first thoughts when it was like, oh, uh, America and one of the Hennigers got expelled. Like, well, I'll admit my first thought was, oh no, what a big loss. Um, <laughs> I don't know. The fact that they got expelled kind of retroactively makes me like them more because they were yeah. presumably pissing Bristol off. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, yes, exactly. But also it's just like expelling and, and like isolating these people further isn't really going to solve any problems not going to chill them out is it you'd think no exactly it's just going to put them on their own and make them do more stupid shit yeah <sighs> yep anyway yeah. and, and wait to to speak about the the tribalism and the you know you're either with us or against this bullshit um mm. jarvis and silas place tons of emphasis on like the networking and connections that comes up later in the chapter like they're mm. this yeah we'll talk about that politics stuff even more later but like you can really see how Bristow is helping to create this culture. Like these two come up and they're basically like, hey, you started to form a connection with Yadira and, and Raquel. Uh, you should go and work on that one and not this one here because that's the one that's going to matter. Like it's, yeah, like they're just so blatantly sort of saying, hey, here are some people on our side that you don't hate. You better go be friends with them and no one else. Mm. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, yeah. th- this mostly just stands out because the Kennedys go and do the exact fucking opposite. They go and <laughs> see all their Alexander-related friends. Yeah, they basically the start a rebellion by the end of this chapter. <laughs> um, yeah, but we'll get to that. Um, so yeah, yeah. but, it, but well, mm. sorry, but yeah, these two specifically sort of say, "Hey, you need to pick which connections you're going to foster because that really matters right now." And the Kennedys are sort of like, "Yep, okay." Yeah, and they go and, and see all the people who have been sort of kicked out. Yeah, I mean like they that. take that message to heart, but just not in the yeah, way exactly. that I think Silas and Jarvis want. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, a- Avery notices that something strange is happening with Silas's connections. It seems like he's up to something, so she sneakily works to get the girls out of the conversation. Yeah, it's it's very clever by Avery how she you know manages to sort of run away tactically like this, um, but. Uh, like I love this idea. So what we sort of get from the brainstorming session later is that they they figure out Silas is presumably able to freeze his connection to people. So if you you know spend enough time around him, wherever you're at at that point, he kind of freezes you in that spot against him. So if yeah. you're his enemy or his friend, you kind of get stuck there. Yeah, he he kind of locks down your relationship to him, which 
yeah. it's raised briefly that it might not necessarily be the most useful power, but there are some obvious advantages to it. But again, I I don't know how strong that is. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, there's there's a there's a strength in the predictability that that Verona brings up that I like, but I I, I mostly love this as just a, an embodiment of this bullshit tribalism. Like yes. Silas literally puts a ticking clock on you choosing sides because yes. if you've been around him for long enough, you're going to end up on a side whether you want to or not. Yeah, he, he forces you to be on a side and then stay on that side, which must be so annoying. Yeah, it, well, yeah, that's the most toxic bullshit part of it is that if he's frozen it, unless he's got some way of like unfreezing it and rephreezing it, which I, I don't know if he does, like, you know, you, you're not allowed to change. Um, which just, you know, that's that toxic part of tribalism. It's like, oh no, you were born on the blue side, so, you know, fuck you forever. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Silas, he's such a creep. Uh, uh, anyway, so this this bit where uh, Avery kind of gets the team out of the situation is such a perfect example of, one, how well the team gels, and two, how well Lucy's earring slots into their kind of dynamics right so avery and snowdrop get themselves out of the situation first and then lucy overhears avery mentioning this is a trap and kind of uh extracts herself from verona as well and it's just it's just great there's always just like <laughs> they just they just work so well as a team it's awesome yeah yeah like we sort of touched on how timon is always talking about how powerful they are um like for me it's that versatility that really is their biggest strength and like that's sort of what we see here is Avery's skill set allows her to see that Silas is fucking shit up, and then she's able to use the skills of the other two to set up a situation where they can get out. Mm. Um, and you know, again, this is a story that's talking about how we work together, and that—that's what we see here. Is their real strength comes from the fact that they work well as a team with all of their strengths combined. Mm. Yeah, they—they're great. They're such a great team. It's awesome. Um, consistently awesome. Um, so yeah, they, they talk about this Silas connection thing a bit, but Verona gets distracted obsessing over how the earring works, which again, classic Verona, <laughs> um, she, she gets very engaged in figuring it out and kind of plans a potential suite of tests that they can run to, you know, establish the rules behind it and, and what its limits are, which is very scientific and great. Although I, just based on how this world works, I expect they won't be able to get super hard and firm rules on it. Uh, but you know, sure. It'll be fun to, to dive into. Yeah, I, I think Verona's smart enough to know that she's not going to be able to do tests that are like, oh, yes, it has a 50-meter range. Yeah. Um, like, this is a world where it's going to have a lot more to do with the emotions. or But, you, you know, you could build rules out of trends. Like, oh, it works better in these situations. Like, yeah. Um, Lucy already starts to describe how it feels. Like, you know, so she can hear whispers, but not the loud things yeah. sort of through it. So it's like, you know, the earring is specifically sort of, helping her eavesdrop basically or helping her get the information she would miss yeah um but then also like it doesn't just do sounds like she she talks about noticing changes in people's posture and and how they react to things like it's that it's all that stuff she's talking about like it's enhancing herself it's it's like she's from that show lie to me like she's getting <laughs> the ability to sort of just read people's body language mm. yeah true it's it's definitely i mean immediately we're seeing all the cool benefits that it's bringing for seemingly no downside beyond the fact that they had to spend two days doing it. Um, so it's great stuff. Great decision to do. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, we were sort of introduced to this idea in terms of like seeing these big three rituals as like level up rituals. Mm. And 
and it, like I'm feeling that right now because it, it feels like Lucy has just kind of gotten a free permanent boost. Mm. Yeah. Well, not not free. I mean, she did have to work for it. Yeah, but, but you know definitely. I mean. I mean, it didn't. It doesn't seem like there's been a huge permanent downside to it. Not not that we've seen yet, at least, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah, uh, the Kennedys find their way to the town in air quotes, this small little collection of buildings. And find the refugees from the school hiding out at the gas station, basically. Gas station slash yeah. ice cream store. <laughs> I love, there's a very like, you know, you know, the genre like kids on bikes, mm. uh, like the Stranger Things, Stephen King book yep. sort of show. Like that, I, I, I very much got kids on bikes vibes from how this all sort of opens. Like it's just three kids walking along the road, like, you know, just sort of moving out of the way of cars. Um, it's a very good genre, so I love seeing it sort of tapped into. Yeah, definitely. It's got that strong vibe. Um, but yeah, and then, God, yeah, so they get to this town, and like, man, everyone just feels beaten down, don't they? Like, this is, there's such a hopelessness to all this. Mm. Yeah, it it does feel weirdly hopeless, right? Uh, but yeah. uh, I don't know, like, I still feel like I'm in disbelief that the the big problem with this to me is we find we get no information on ha- what Alexander did to the extent that it almost seems like he actually just did nothing. He just kind of left and Bristow took over, right? Or hmm. Bristow took over and Alexander left immediately. Like it doesn't feel like anything actually happened beyond the fact that we know that um that Dreg got injured somehow. We don't really know anything that took place from Alexander's perspective. Um, we, we find out all the ways that he was, all the moves that Bristow made, right? Um, we find out Durocher has stepped back. We found out that, you know, Nicolette and, and a few of the other augurs all got turned. Um, and, but yeah, Alexander seemingly has done nothing in response. And it gives her this weird, incomplete feeling. And it's called out in the text by some of the students thinking that Alexander's still going to, you know, have his second coming and return and do some big masterstroke that sorts it all out. And I kind of feel the same way. It's very strange. I. I've been resisting actually making this comparison for a while, but I can't not do it right now. Like I can't help, but for quite a while now have just viewed Bristow as the Republicans and Alexander as the Democrats. <laughs> yeah, okay. Explain. And it. like, well, what you're saying right now, it's like Alexander, he, he just feels like he did nothing. Um, mm. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, cause, cause like to, to sort of build on that metaphor a bit more, I guess, like, the school, one of the big things we start to talk about in this section is like there's there's sort of political ramifications to what goes on in this school that will affect the whole area. Like, you know, all sorts of power is going to move around. This is going to affect everyone. Um, and not just like the other practitioners who are sort of the 1% or whatever, but like, you know, that will cascade to the innocents, presumably, and, and everyone else. Um, and, you know, when we've got, well, the premise of this story is we're basically dealing with the murder of someone like on the, a kind of equivalent to the Supreme Court, I think was the comparison we made early on. Mm. It, it feels like, you know, these uh, issues going on over here in the uh, executive branch um, tie into that thematically. Mm. So, okay. So we've got Bristow, Republicans, Alexander, Democrats, in that he's still obviously a huge dick, but one that you feel slightly better about him being in charge. <laughs> yeah. So what? I mean, yeah. I, 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 don't, I, I don't know how deep, I want to dive into this being okay. like the exact metaphor, if that You've makes said sense. It, you like, can't you... take it back, Elliot. No, okay. So <laughs> this is the what the 2016 election playing out. Is that what we're seeing? 
I mean, it, uh, yeah, I would, I would be willing to say that this is comparable to 2016 in the timeline of things. Mm. So therefore, what's going to happen next? Well, hopefully in this story, like the Kennedys <laughs> are going to like fix Turn it. it I mean, wait, yeah, wait, to jump ahead in my notes a little bit, like I, I, I can't wait to see where Alexander has ended up in all of this because I'm actually kind of hoping he doesn't have a master stroke or any mm-hmm. ideas because what would be great for me is basically he has to go to the Kenneteers and the Kenneteers can get to do their like you know they could actually sort of fix Alexander because it's like oh we'll help you and, and we're going to help you but like you have to promise to stop being a dick because mm. um, the more this has gone on the closer I felt to thinking oh Alexander might actually be redeemable and it's when he's had his power taken away like this that's like the perfect time to true do that to him like to redeem this is him. the time where you could say hey get your shit in order and we'll help you like take this back and do it properly yeah yeah interesting uh, i i still can't believe that alexander has just been so passive in this entire t- setup of this fight right the from we, when we first got to the bhi we've seen alexander take one step against bristow and that was kind of taking over his his uh, coop claim class Right, God, that's a tongue twister. Mm. Um, he's just done nothing actively, and I can't believe that that would happen. He's too, he's too smug to just do nothing, you know. Or, but or is that the whole point? He was too smug. Maybe he thought, like, yeah, I, I feel, like, I feel like what this may come down to is the idea that Bristow managed to steal so many of the of the orders. Um, well, yeah, the apprentices. Yeah. Um, yeah, even probably... though, even with that, I just can't see it, you know? Like... Yeah, I guess we'll see. Alexander is, he's been set up as, and not just set up, but clearly characterized as powerful and a good auger. And like, you know, the interactions that we've had with him outside of the school of the stuff of like, you know, when, when we were in the Forest Ribbon Trail and all that stuff, he clearly knows what's going on. He's clearly got his shit together. I can't believe that he would be so easily beat. It just can't. It just doesn't compute to me. Like, it, it just has to be. You just have to get your tinfoil hats on because there's no other explanation. <laughs> I mean, to to present like a possible counterexample in universe. I mean, we know Bristow was working with another circle of augurs. Mm. So if anyone was going to be able to dodge augur related stuff, like maybe they were helping him dodge Alexander's stuff. Mm. I don't know. Oh, I, I just can't believe Alexander. it. I just can't believe it. And <laughs> out, outside of the narrative as well, I just can't believe that if this is it, if this is the confrontation, we just didn't see it at all, right? Like, unless we go back and see an interlude where Alexander loses, I'm just not going to buy that it's over. Even if the story ends, I'm going to not buy it. <laughs> um, yeah, see, I don't know. Like, I'm sure he had subtle things going or whatever, but like, they probably just fell apart under like Bristow's brutish takeover like mm. you know kind of the fairy versus goblin sort of thing i think bristow just came in and so like simply did things like take apprentices or whatever that it probably just undermined the stuff alexander had going mm. <sighs> i mean maybe i don't know are we just going to talk around it in circles until we get the alexander into the next chapter i think <laughs> um so yeah no, i've still got my money i've still got my money on this upcoming interlude being a brownies interlude if it's going to be a meme interlude, Elliot, it's going to be Sig, okay? Not brownies. <laughs> I don't think the brownies are a meme interlude. I actually oh, think that they makes are. sense. Oh, come on. No way. They're like, they're the people like in the school. Like, they've got so much to show us. 
Mm. Like you're talking about wanting an interlude that shows us everything that happened in the school. Right. No they, one's better positioned to yeah. see everything than the Browns. They would definitely know the goings on, uh, going going ons, goings ons. Yeah. Um. Okay. Cool. Uh. So yeah, the the chapter ends with the Canadiers kind of reaffirming that Bristow is too much of a dickhead to stay in charge. Basically, like if Bristow was just a bit nicer, the Canadiers would probably be totally fine with with him being in charge. But he's actually just too much of an asshole, so they can't let it stand yeah um i but there's this bit where like bristow's like cronies come into the town yes sorry we skipped over as, that as, as a sort of part of this because i just want to say i feel so sorry for this very small town that's near the blue heron institute because <laughs> they, they clearly cop so much of the like overflow bullshit yeah they picked a bad place to set up because there's just going to be a heap of practitioner shenanigans taking place nearby <laughs> yeah yeah um but yeah uh the the Bristow loyalists are huge assholes, and so the Kennedys vow to you know seed the rebellion and start kind of building their allegiances, I guess. Um, and that's where the chapter ends. And I suspect that's probably where the arc is going to end as well, right? It feels like an end of an arc point. Yeah, we were just sort of talking about what the next chapter's going to be like in terms of an interlude. Like <laughs> we yeah, both seem to be working off the assumption conclusion. Yeah. that we're about to. Yeah, wait, we both. We're both making that assumption. So we could just be wrong. It could just be 6.10. Yeah. Um, but it feels like it feels like we're ready for a, an interlude to set up this conflict even more. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm, I still strongly believe it's the time for the Alexander interlude, but we'll see. <laughs> um, yeah. One last point I want to bring up with, with, with Alexander and all that, because what I found really hilarious about why Alexander seems to be losing is because when he lost all his apprentices, he now had too many commitments he had to meet. So he's like, he has too much other stuff to do. And that's mm. given Bristow like more freedom to to do his bullshit. And just like if we go right back to 2.x, like Nicolette's interlude, um, how Alexander was always like trying to eat up her time. What there was a bit of karmic joy for me in the fact that Alexander has been beaten by overcommitting himself to all these commitments, like he was trying to do to Nicolette. Mm, true. I mean, it will be it. It would be a poetic end. Uh, unfortunately, it's not the end. I'm sure. <laughs> no, I don't think it'll be the end. But like, I I feel a bit of justice knowing that he's been hurt in this way because of he was doing this to Nicolette. Mm. Um, I mean, Nicolette is someone I can't wait to check in with. Um, after this, because like we talked about this way back in her interlude, but you know, she had this auger circle. And she's kind of convinced, oh, when I can get out of here and, and sell information to the auger circle or whatever, like my life will suddenly be fantastic. Mm. Um, and now she's kind of got there with Bristow's help from the looks of it. Like it's all just so, I, yeah, I can't wait to see where, where she's at because I'm convinced she's not going to actually be happy with what's happened, at least long term. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Mm. Wait, yeah. Wait, this August Circle, I mean, you know, they're the pe- sort of people who work with Bristow. They've got to be like, <laughs> They've got to be horrible. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I Yeah. Uh, well, let's not talk in circles right now. We'll get it in the interlude next chapter. We'll find out where this story's taking this next. <laughs> I actually just can't predict it. So let's not let's not try. Sure. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, we'll get into the, the uh, extra material, which is binding and countermeasures. Um the trio have left notes on how they met bind the Kennet others. Woohoo! Kennet others. Oh god. Bless woohoo. Binding them. It's rough. It's so like tragic, right? Like the whole vibe is just the Kennet is clearly hating that they have to pre- plan for this 
eventuality or you know one of these eventualities needing to to take place but it's clearly necessary and so you just feel the tragedy of them needing to think about how they would murder their friends essentially <laughs> yeah like like again we we're sort of touched on this the the kennedys have this really good sort of connection with all the Kennet others yeah mostly because there's this one toxic side where and this is this has been the shadow overhanging their relationship with the Kennet others right from day one which is one of them's a murderer who they sort of need to try and bring to justice yeah there's there's it it, it is just these are your best friends one of them is secretly a murderer good luck like yeah it's there's yeah (laughs) yeah and that leads to these really awkward Things like, oh, you have to figure out how you might betray and t- and kill your friends if you need to. And that's just kind of a part of your life. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, I think that's just realistic. Like, you... Yes. You, you can't blame have... them for having to make this choice. No, exactly. And you'll always, like, have some reason not to trust the people you're around. Like, uh, you know, as much as I'd love it, you can't, like, we can't just have some perfectly rosy relationship with the group of others. Like there always have yeah. to be some reason you can't trust them a hundred percent. And that yeah. to some extent always means you have to look into what you'll do. And I think it's how you handle that. That's going to be so interesting to explore. Yeah, definitely. Um, <sighs> yep. I mean, like just from a bit of a more meta point, I love how this extra material being placed here helps sort of keep us in touch with Kenneth and the others that are there. Like I think, Despite the fact we've we've kind of spent this whole arc at the Blue Heron Institute, I think the story is doing a very good job at like keeping its finger on the pulse of Kennet. Like we we call Matthew and Edith, mm. we get extra material like this that kind of goes through every character that is in Kennet, so that we don't forget them. Mm. Um, it's it's really nice. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, we also get to practice our practice skills here with like you know kind of problem solving how would we bind these yeah these people what would you do like in this, these situations like as much as it sucks it is kind of fun to problem solve like taking these <laughs> this imagery of people and <sighs> and trying to figure that out trying to figure out the potential weaknesses from it yeah um yeah like not not to go full verona on everyone but i found this very fun yes uh so they start with matthew and edith yeah um and something I, I kind of want to talk about at the start of this one, but like also overall, like I love that the Kennedys are like in part because they hate this, they're giving it the appropriate weight. Like they sort of open this by saying, oh, we want to, you know, do this with the approval of the other Kennedy others or one of the uh, like, you know, big four or big three at the moment. Mm. Uh, like they, you know, they don't feel like rogue vigilantes, but they want to go through the proper authorities and make sure that they're doing this for the right reasons. Mm. And I feel like binding is such an invasive, controlling thing to do that, like, mm. I, I like this idea of thinking, well, if we're going to have to do this, let's make sure we, you know, don't just run into it ourselves when we think it's right, but we actually, you know, reach out. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a good point. I, if you're going to make the decision to do this, you really need to make sure you have it all, you know, planned out properly. Yeah, yeah, and that it's not just like you, you know, going rogue. Yes, like they don't, they don't want to be vigilantes. They want to make sure they're doing this right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But so, sorry to to go back to Matthew and Edith. Um, yeah, I I hadn't it hadn't ever really occurred to me how mechanically kind of similar Matthew and Edith are until we saw them here like this. Um, yeah, I hadn't either, but you're right. It's it's 
a human-ish body in with a spirit inside it, more or less, right? Yeah, they're just sort of on different sides of this spectrum between, like, it kind of seems like you're a host if it's mostly human with a strong other inside, and you're a vessel mm. if it's mostly an other with a weak human inside. And, yeah. you know, they're just sort of both skirting around that line. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, which means that they are mechanically similar to Bind, which is nice and convenient for the Kenshiers, I suppose. <laughs> um, uh, I, yeah. I feel like they're probably the most complex to handle. It seems like they'd be fairly difficult, but there's a lot of, I guess, thematic ideas listed that uh, would form the basis of the binding that would be done here. Yeah, I, like, I think what my favorite part of the extra material is, alongside all of the brainstorming, like I love this sort of list of numbers to include in the binding circle and why. Um, the fact that uh, presumably Avery, who put this together, um, has drawn like little examples of all the like symbols they want to use for all the others is just really cool. Mm. Um, they're all so intricate and complex. Uh, like I was just very impressed that Wilbo was able to put these together um as well as you know avery uh yeah just I, I i thought i was really impressed by the quality of these circles and diagrams in this extra material mm. yeah yeah speaking of uh, the, i i'm jumping ahead a bit but but um speaking of diagrams i guess it's not quite a diagram but this image that's here of matthew with the doom hiding inside him kind of tearing him open such a so good such a powerful representation of who, who matthew is it's i loved it it was great I didn't know if that was specifically meant to be Matthew or if it's just like a picture of a, a host or a vessel. Oh, sure. Like traced from a textbook. But like, yeah, you're right. Either way, like it's a very evocative image of like how how you could sort of view others and or hosts and vessels. Mm. <sighs> yeah, I loved it. I thought it was very powerful. Um, yeah. But yeah, to, to, to sort of talk about like Matt and Edith in, in general, um, I, I love this idea that you because you kind of need to bind the human and the other they can sort of lean into whichever one causes the binding more problems um and that made me think like i i was i was ready to go all conspiracy theory on like matt and how this relates to him and the doom and, and stuff and that kind of gets covered at the end of this extra material mm. um but I, I don't know that we've ever given enough thought to like edith and the girl by candlelight and how much of each makes up the edith that we see mm. if you know what I mean, because like, we know that there are bits of edith james still in there but i've always kind of worked off the assumption that the girl by candlelight is like is the main behind presence. the wheels yeah for sure yeah um but like i wonder i wonder where that balance sits like i kind of always assumed it was the girl by candlelight doing 99 percent of the existing and edith james was mostly a dead body with some imprints left on it but um yeah like like you know the longer the girl by candlelight spends inside edith i wonder if lines blur there or yeah i don't know like i guess i got my tinfoil hat on a lot with edith because you know <laughs> it seems extremely likely at this point that she's involved yes heavily um, involved i would say <laughs> yeah and you're right the fact that there is a dichotomy to her gives her another potential out to like questions of like truth telling and stuff right like oh did edith yeah. kill the carmine beast no edith didn't kill the carmine beast <laughs> stuff like that right? yeah yeah, exactly. Like, uh, I, I think when that came up in Edith's interview, she talked about how she, the girl by candlelight, like hopped out of the body and yep. nothing external got into the body. And somebody on our Discord, I think it was, was sort of talking about, well, maybe Edith James just took over her own body and did something. Um, yeah. Which I, I don't 
think I agree with just because doesn't you know, seem there were... possible, but yeah, I don't know if Edith James is that strong. And then also like we got in the recent uh, Alcazar thing, it had the glowing yellow eyes, the Edith that we saw in that. So that implies to me that the girl by candlelight is still inside. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think, I think the concept of the identity of the girl by candlelight versus Edith is something I want to keep thinking about. Cause I feel like that'll be important, not just to how, they might have done it but like why because i feel like there'll be more to this than just like you know the obvious motivation edith's had since chapter like two mm. of this story would have mm. been i'm a fleeting spirit i'm on the, like the bottom of the social totem pole that the universe has put me on i want to upgrade myself well upgrade myself and potentially matthew right like they're both yeah. kind of in that circumstance yeah but like i i i, I assume there's going to be more to it than that Mm. and i'm just wondering like you know edith there's edith james there's the girl by candlelight there's the doom like how do all these pieces fit together to make a more complex motivation i haven't quite managed to put it together but um it's so interesting to think about yeah i it definitely seems like it's where the story is going um but we will see exactly why it is what it is i guess mm. well uh, and, yeah and, and like how matthew fits into that i think is going to be so interesting like how on board with it all was he um to jump ahead a bit like the end of this extra material kind of reminds us that like matthew is as bound by the doom as as the doom is by him mm. um and, and so you know how how much is he kind of stuck with what's happened just because he has no options without mm. letting the doom out mm. yeah um i guess we can touch on that a bit more at the end <laughs> sure um so yeah uh next up we get to Alpie. Uh, they discuss how they might bind to Alpi. Yeah, um, and I love how the the excerpts from books they have here are like just so intense compared to Alpi. Like they all paint pictures of like night hags that like you know attack people and are like evil. Yeah, and that's just so funny because like Alpi's always sort of been like you know this this like chill, happy go lucky like centrist. Yeah, I mean she's so chill that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh whereas like you know the, the books would have you think of of night hags or whatever it's like you know these villains that are going to attack innocent people and she's just like no nah, the universe tells me to give them bad dreams so I do mm-hmm. <laughs> yep um this the, the discussion of this binding got to me it feels very cruel right like i mean i guess any binding is cruel but this one is like starving her to death and then binding her and also binding her by like like in a very domineering way forcing her to submit to your will like oh it's just very gross i mean all the bindings yeah. are gross but some of them are just especially horrifying <laughs> yeah like uh, as we sort of said the core concept of binding is kind of controlling and invasive um but some of these ones feel doubly more so like my my favorite part about the alpi one for a certain use of the term favorite is that one of them sort of has to stay there and look at her for the binding like it it has to be a very intimate sort of thing you can't just like do it remote mm-hmm. um which because you know alpie is the one that you know especially verona and avery like both really like so you know you can't get out of needing to bind her by keeping your distance one of you is going to have to be right there and like engaging with her and watching her the whole time which just is horrifying mm. yeah um yeah, it's the worst. It's horrifying. Uh, although it is a little funny that one strategy for binding is to just throw a puzzle at Alpine and demand that she solves it. 
<laughs> which is a nice bit of levity to to bring us back up after the horrifying binding that you would need to do to her. You're right. It balances out, out a bit. It does remind <laughs> me. Like, remember we did a monster corner on, on bears back when we, we still had time to do bonus bits and um, we had that whole list of crazy ways you could bind mares, like, or put off mares, like inviting them to breakfast and stuff. Mm. This feels like that. Yeah. <sighs> yep. <laughs> Just weird little things. Anyway, um, next up on the discussion of how to bind is Fairy, e.g. Guillaume and Marissica. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the concept of binding fairies because it feels mm. simultaneously very easy but also just fucking impossible. Yeah, and I get this vibe from it as well where they kind of discuss like, oh, it might just be doomed to fail if we attempt to bind a fae. But that yeah. kind of feels like they're playing into this aura of mystique that fairy <laughs> obviously cultivate about themselves as a defense mechanism. Like, the fact that they think it's it possibly too hard is just them playing into the shenanigans of the fae, right? These are these mind games that I, I just can't engage in. As soon as you get to, ah, but that's what they want me to think. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, like, I'm already sort of out. Because like, you're totally right that, like, how much of that is just the fairy trying to make it harder by convincing you it is? Because mm. this is a world where expectations and patterns matter. And if the fairy go around telling everyone that they're very hard because to, to bind because they're very tricky, then that might start to become true. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And that's what the fairy are playing into, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we also get a little reminder here as well that uh, Marcy gave them all those gifts and told them there was like a trap for each of them. And we haven't quite figured out what those were. So just, I like this little reminder that, hey, that's a plot thread that's still out there. Mm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The trap stuff. I mean, that's, they kind of say, okay, there's no point to us thinking about how to bind them. Let's just worry about the traps. Uh, maybe that is the trap, right? Maybe that's part of the trap. <laughs> I don't know. Again, we're diving down that circular chain of logic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, like, my worry there is is against the fairy. You don't resurface. Um, yeah. But yeah, like, I, using this as an excuse, and I've kind of been doing this already, to to talk about the fairy, like, or just talk about the canon others that we haven't seen for a while. Um, so, like, something I, I wanted to bounce around with you and, and think about more is, like, so if Guillaume is on the verge of falling to winter, like, the fairy see falling to winter as death, but we, we weren't now that, you know, they're a winter fairy and they have their own, like, there are things like it's not just becoming a statue. It is still being a fairy, but just one that kind of acts a bit more predictably. Mm. So if Guillaume is like falling to winter, what does that like look like? Like he's not just going to die. But yeah, he's, he's not just going to be gone forever, right? Yeah, like he's still going to be a, a tricky fairy, just just one that's always pulling the same tricks. So like, you know, is he falling into this role or this pattern of being the mentor like we've talked about? Um, or like, does it change when he falls to winter? Um, because obviously, like Silas's stuff had like it was like freezing the connection, so that was like wintry imagery. So does does Guillaume physically change as part of it? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Like, they talk about it as though him falling to winter is a potential advantage, but presumably, being a winter fae comes with its own set of you know strengths and weaknesses. Like, it's not just oh, he's he's almost dead and so it'll be much easier to bind him or whatever like yeah i guess well, we don't know enough outside, do we well even outside of the binding like what does that look like for his relationship with the kenneteers like is yeah is him falling to winter is that does that mean he'll yeah. leave kennet like is that gonna happen does it mean they have to like yeah. put him down what does it mean 
or or is him becoming like the wise old mentor of Kenneth, his Winterfey form? Interesting. Like, that he's starting to slip into, you know? Interesting. I like that idea. Although it doesn't necessarily seem super consistent with what we've learned of Winterfey. Yeah. Although, but again, like, you know, Gilly is someone who, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's very typical for Faye to be part of a town like Kennet. Yeah, true. Also, so maybe like, he kind of breaks the rules a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we don't know enough about Fairy to know that exactly what the rules are around this stuff. Mm. Um. Because, like, Marcy is the other one. Like, I've always sort of wondered, what is what is Marissa doing in Kennet? Mm. And we had that thing, like, she wanted to steal the note from Guillaume, but, like, is that, did she come to Kennet to do that? Mm. Or was she already here and that just became her mission because she needed something to do? Uh, who can answer these questions, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I guess I'm asking hypothetical, oh, rhetorical questions. Yeah. But, um, like, like, like to, to focus in on Marcy, some, one of the things I noticed is brought up here, and, and I recently reheard in my arc to like reread that I'm doing right now. Marissa is a very young fairy. Mm. And, and like, I feel like that's important because like, it contrasts her a lot with Guillaume, who's this fairy who's like, you know, on the verge of going through fairy death. Um, but Marissa, it's also said like, she was born to Darkfall Court, mm. and that's actually quite, quite rare. And like, that's a court that's all about changing things and and sort of going against the status quo and you know so she's born to it she's kind of new and fresh like she she says in arc two she's still trying to learn what her goal in life is like you know where does she see herself like she was the other person who was associated with the coin like she's one of our other lead suspects alongside edith and i just you know again it's the same as edith i'm trying to put all these pieces together we have mariska she's this young fresh fairy who presumably wants to make a splash and what does that mean or look like for how she's interacting with the carmine beast mm. yeah i don't know uh, I, we can marissa is the other person i think that seems the most suspicious second to edith right um yeah and we can make assumptions about what her motivations are but uh, i i don't feel like we've gotten any new pieces of information i'm i'm just kind of thinking yeah. about it and i just i have no fucking clue I mean, I, I guess I would like. I'm thinking of tying it back to what Miss was thinking at the end of Five Dot D about how like this Carmine Beast thing feels like it's going to be one of those precedents for changing the fundamental order of the world. Mm. You know, where, like like the the death of the Carmine Beast is going to be something that's looked back on as a precedent. And we talked about how that might fit in with practitioners taking over more and more of the um like the jurisdiction than they were meant to have. Mm. I guess if Marissa is this sort of very young new fairy who's all about like change, she seems like the perfect person to be motivated to challenge to put that into into yeah. action. Mm. Yeah, to to be someone who wants to challenge the status quo. I, I think she's explicitly said like she she's someone who wants to challenge the status quo, and you know, yeah, is, is this her doing that her doing uh, out of yeah. a big scale? Yeah, yeah, true. Um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, so next we get what is, in my opinion, possibly the saddest one, How to Bind John. Um, <laughs> this one's really sad because it seems like it's actually quite simple to bind John. Like, they could actually pretty easily bind him. And it would just be so cruel. Like, uh, John is so consistently nice. And and the the thing that really makes it land for me is this has happened to all the other members of John's squad, and that's why he's alone. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just tragic. 
Yeah, you're right. This this segment is just simple and tragic. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, like every time we've kind of thought bad of John, it's usually been a misunderstanding. Like there was the whole thing with the hungry choir being Yolda. Turns out he didn't know. Mm. Uh, there was that time he like held guns to their faces the first time he saw them, but that turned out to kind of be justified paranoia that he was able to undo. So it was mostly okay, kind of. Mm. Um. Yeah, there's no reason to hate John, but this he still has to be on the list, and it sucks. <sighs> it really does suck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So next up, uh, goblins. Uh, in, an interesting candidate for how to bind. Right? They maybe feel like they might be the most difficult, just because there's so fucking many of them. But individually, obviously, <laughs> they don't feel super strong. Yeah, the vibe you sort of get from the goblins is that it would be easy to do one or two of them, but you. You don't really get that chance because they're just usually in groups and there's a fuck ton of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they're all like unique. Like something that comes up, it's like Toad Swallow kind of acts like this and Blunt Munch acts like this. And it's like, it, it's hard to juggle all of those things at once. Yeah, there's there's too much going on for you to really know how to fully take them out in one fell swoop, which makes the assumption that they're all united, which maybe is not necessarily true. But um, yeah. Yeah, you're right. In 5.D, we saw that Toadswallow is up to some shenanigans. I, I mean, maybe that means they are united because Toadswallow is kind of in command of all of them, but we don't really know. Yeah, yeah. No, it feels like by not including Blunt Munch, he was implying that there's at least, you know, one line they could be divided down. Yeah, yeah, but true. But then on the other hand, with goblins, you have to, um, you know, sort of take into account that if there's a fight, the other half might just join in because it's a fight. Mm hmm. Hmm. Yeah, maybe <laughs> just just for the sake of, hey, let's do it. Let's scrap. I mean, mm. if it's Toadsolo on one side, I can see it being some other goblins joining the other side just because they might want to usurp Toadsolo's relative position of power. Um, yeah, it's another potential angle. True. Um. So yeah, uh, the other thing that's discussed is that goblins will turn into weapons when they're bound or cornered. Which is interesting. Do you do you know what weapons any of the goblins might turn into? <laughs> I'm trying to think like what's a toad swallow esque weapon? Something that's kind of rough around the edges, but oh, oh sorry, like the opposite, clean yeah. around the edges, but a, a real shit underneath. Um, my best guess for toad swallow, like originally, I had a sneaky dagger, which was the best I could do, but it didn't feel right. Um, I reckon a musket kind of suits toad swallow. Because mm. it's like, you know, this sort of like, you know, for the time, intricate sort of machine. It kind of feels old timey. Like, you know, Totoro walks around acting all posh with a monocle and, and stuff, even though he's not like, I don't know. I, yeah, I'm lucky in musket for Totoro. Oh, yeah, I could see that. Especially because it's kind of got this like, you know, especially like old wars, especially among certain yeah. segments of population, have this like glorified angle to them. But something like a musket, which has a a bullet that's not super highly refined and a blade that's not super highly refined, is just gonna be a real nightmare overall, right? I, I like that angle. Yeah. Well, and like you know, they're they're a bit versatile. Like you said, they can they got the bullet and the and the sword. Like you know, for the time, they were quite gadgety, and that's yeah, that other part true. of Toad's Law. Yeah, um, um, I like it. My only other confident answer is that Cherry Pop would probably be a thumbtack. <laughs> Okay, sure, why not? That's just equivalent to her level of power, I guess. Yeah, it's just a small, sharp thing that kind of irritates you if you poke yourself with it. Yeah. 
Um, okay, next up is The Lost, which starts out with Miss. Although it seems unlikely Miss will need to be bound based on her current position in the story, but better to be prepared, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the one. You said John was the entry that hurt mm. you the most. This was the one that hurt me the most. Is when mm. I saw Lost as a category, and it's like Miss and Snowdrop. And I was like, how fucking dare you put this these two on the list yeah. of, of, of potential bindees? Uh, yeah, I mean, binding miss is, it just feels explicitly like it's a death sentence, right? Like you're affixing a label to her. And that is something that we saw from her portion of that interlude is just so fundamentally against what she is. Yeah, what what really sucks about this miss one is that they don't really know how to bind her like in a circle. Like a lot of yeah. these other ones, it's invasive and controlling, but it's it's just kind of like a temporary imprisonment like overnight jail like oh we'll stick john in a circle for 24 hours but then he can get out and it's just our relationship that's broken with miss there's not a circle you put her in for a day it's like oh we have to help attach a label to her which kind of fundamentally undermines who she is permanently yeah like it's fucked up (sighs) yep rough um yeah, and then of course they discuss binding Snowdrop, which again feels like a huge transgression. Although they actually don't really get into it in any level of detail, which was nice. <laughs> they basically say, yeah. "Oh, we better put Snowdrop in this list." And here's one thing that she likes and dislikes, but they don't actually talk about how they would bind her <laughs> to the same extent, which is nice. Yeah, it almost just feels like they're like, "Oh, we're listing all the Kenneth others, and I guess Snowdrop is on that list, so we yeah. better put her down for fairness." Yes. Um. um. We also get a little tease here about the Oni again, and I'm yep. just going to keep bringing this up every time these days because they're driving me nuts. I need this fucking <laughs> Oni story. Yeah, I, I was. I don't know why my eyes, I guess, just glazed over it. But when I was checking out your live read on, uh, you know, the Pale Reflections Twitter, um, you pointed out, and I was like, oh yeah, another instance of the Oni being referenced in such a little throwaway <laughs> way that just makes them more engaging to think about. I, I think there's something to it. I think there's something to this conspiracy theory that you're brewing that the only are going to somehow be very important to the story or show up in the story in some way yeah well didn't we get it confirmed that at one point they're like waging war on the concept of the practice like that feels important like yeah like it feels relevant to what our characters are doing for sure like wobbo is just is seeding this stuff very intentionally but it's just it's been going on long enough now that i'm actually getting mad because i I need it so like is it just in the sense of insanity now is it just (laughs) at the point where wobbo is just fucking with you yeah, it, yeah. The original plan was to tell like the only story mid arc six, but he saw everyone's reactions and he was like, yeah. no, "I'm going to keep teasing them." For keep a bit. it going a bit longer. Yeah. So who's the practice? Is it Yadira who's only related? Is that right? Yes. I can't remember now. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's highly likely that when Alexander makes his masterstroke, Yadira, the conflict with Yadira will potentially come to a head. So I expect that's when we'll start to see the <laughs> the only stuff. Um, we'll have to see. <laughs> I just don't care how it happens. I just need it to. You just need it to happen. It's driving me insane. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so then we get to uh, information on some of the new others in town, obviously starting with Tashlit, who we've already met briefly, um, who, again, doesn't get that much information on how you might bind her, but it seems like her power is explicitly weakened by having innocence around. Um, so that would be a potential way to to take her down, just have innocence around, and she can't really do much anyway. She's also like a second generation god yes. begotten. Yes. Which like they also say is weak. Those ones by are just pretty yeah. shit. Yeah. And also sterile. Like basically this whole segment just seems to exist to make us feel even more sorry for Tashlit. Yep. Uh that we already did. Like she just 
I mean, you know, everyone keeps saying, oh, she's just sort of taking it in her stride. And just the more we learn about her, the more impressed I am by that because she's gotten a real shit lot. Yeah, she life. got a bad hand, didn't she? Poor Tash. Like, she's got this heritage that is basically just hurting her and she's managed to move somewhere and it's just been like, yeah, I'm just going to do the best I can. And that's yep. like really impressive. Yep. Um, and then we meet the new favorite character, move over Snowdrop, <laughs> new, move over Cherry Pop. We have Sig. A, the not, I mean, I, I put the word sentient here in my description of Sig as a sentient cigarette. I don't even know if that's fair. Like it, based on the description, Sig seems to have no personality, basically just kind of is around sometimes doing miscellaneous stuff um yeah it's a weird one <laughs> yeah I, I feel like we talked about this at the start of the story with the hungry choir like trying to separate this idea that sentience is like a one line thing like you're either yeah well, like from a rock to a human but yeah. it's more like there's many dimensions to what makes like sentience and like sig is sitting very far along some of them like it can it can guard the perimeter yeah which is like insane but then also like it's not really personified in a way that it has personality or anything well, yeah and it can't like talk seemingly the way it yeah. marks if there's been a breach is it just kind of burns a hole into the map at that point which is such a great method of communication <laughs> yeah but it's like wait so there's obviously intelligence there because it can observe yes. and communicate yes but like yeah you know does it like does it have a sense of humor you know yeah exactly uh, what is it like to interact with so yeah i really want to get more info on sig <laughs> it's just so enticing to find out more about it's just yeah, it's such a wild concept. Like I, I, I think everyone's had the same reaction of just like, what the this fuck? Is awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Uh, I, I mean, you know, and then on the other side, it's it's fire related. It's a cigarette. So, like Avery opens this section with, you know, some of these could be allies to our culprits, and then it's yeah. like, oh, uh, Edith is basically our most confirmed culprit. And here we have a new fire-related other. Like, yep, Edith's gonna light I... Sig, and something crazy is gonna happen. I mean, like, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? We'll have to find out, I guess. Um, but yes, then we get a final bit of this chapter where they retouch on the idea of Matthew and discuss how they might not actually need to necessarily bind Matthew if they can, or even Edith, potentially, if they can bind the Doom and, and kind of control them that way. Yeah, which, like, <sighs> I mean, it, it's true. Like, as, as we've already touched on, like, the the Doom has Matthew kind of as bound as he has it in a way. Yes. You can exploit that. Yes. Um, you can put both of their lives on the line in a way that is <sighs> super gross, but fair. Yeah, effectively binding them. Um, it's gross. It's the worst, but it's <laughs> correct. It's an, it's an avenue. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I love that as the way to finish off this section, like, just in case, because, you know, maybe you're like me and you got caught up in the fun problem-solving part of, like, oh, how would we bind a fairy? Like, oh, Gilmay can get bound by heartbreak. How how might we do that? Like, you know, do we bring up, like, his, his old dead lover? Mm. Um, and, you know, like, like it, could get e it could be easy to get lost in, like, the fun problem-solving part of that. So we really just end this extra material with, hey, just a reminder, this shit fucking sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's the end of the extra material. Um, but not the end of our episode, because we want to dive back into some pale predictions, some predictions left by the community on just what's going to happen in this story. Yeah, we um we we skipped this a few weeks ago, and then uh somehow ended up skipping it for like three weeks in a row. So that's yeah, our so now bad, we've got a so. whole backlog of big predictions to go through, which is great. Yeah. 
So um, what have you got for us, Ruben? I put out one. I mean, it's not a prediction because it's definitely correct, um, <laughs> which I know I've said before, but this time, unironically, not in a meme way. This is just so perfect that it, I, I'm, it just is correct. And it's effectively a monster corner, which is um, talking about, uh, this is by Horseshoe Crab, by the way, uh, talking about uh, Mr. Rudbeck, who was a summon, uh, one of the three summons in Durashay's class where Lucy pulled out her, her weapon and, and threatened Durashay in that great moment. Um, uh, I'm just going to read out the, the first part of it. So Mr. Rudbeck represents black-eyed Susans, which if you're not familiar is a type of flower. Um, he's surrounded by yellow flowers, has a dark eye in the form of a snake, and invades his surroundings as black-eyed Susans do. And as the clincher, these flowers belong to the ge- genus Rudbeckia. It's all been spelled out for us. Uh, this is just oh. perfect. It's just so great. It's Mr. Rudbeck was the guy with the snake head, by the way. Um, yeah, yeah. Just such a perfect thing of like, oh, this is what Wabo was referencing with this other. That's awesome. The kind of this spirit of an invasive species, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, and that was the one that I felt like we had the least understanding of in that segment. So, yeah. Like, I yeah, this does feel like it's... effectively joined all the dots for us. So, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Feels like it's filling in some gaps. And Wabo's shown off his like garden knowledge. I think it yes. was like mid arc three. We had that whole gardening metaphor for the town so, yep yep um very yeah. consistent i Love i'd it. be willing to believe this was an intentional reference i mean the fact that it's from the genus rudbeckia is just so yeah. on the nose that it just <laughs> must be true right yeah I, that was what clinched it for me. yeah <laughs> um what have you pulled out elliot uh so i pulled out a prediction from drake marshall Mm-hmm. Uh, who uh, basically presents the theory that uh, Verona will become a collector, like when she ev- eventually specializes. Mm. Um, which, I mean, I think I'd be interested in having the argument about whether she ever will specialize, or mm. like, could she remain a dabbler? Is that something you're allowed to do? Uh, but uh, anyway, like, if we move that argument aside and assume she is going to specialize, uh, mm. I think Drake makes a good case for why a collector. Uh, is a good fit for her. Um, like she's expressed interest in all these researches that usually revolve around magical items, so stuff like alchemy and enchantment, and like taking, you know, normal objects and making them magical. Um, and I think like the really other other interesting thing they bring up is that she has this like budding rivalry with Bristow Brewing, mm. um, in in a similar way to Alexander, um, but like you know. Drake Marshall sort of points out like a good rivalry usually comes from the fact that people have a lot of similarities. Um, so maybe setting up Verona as a, a collector as a more active got... foil to Bristow. Yeah. Yeah. And, but what, like a collector with principles as opposed to Bristow. Yeah. Uh, like, so she wouldn't collect people in the same way. Well, potentially the thing I like about this is it might give us an avenue to really break the hold that, um, that Bristow has on people like Clem by Verona potentially kind of taking over the claim to them and then either releasing it or just using it more ethically, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be definitely very tough to use the term collector like with someone in terms of people like Clem and still have me think that she's doing it in a good way. But <laughs> yeah, um, like you're right, it, it does feel possible. Like if she was definitely someone who put all of her effort into improving those people's lives rather than her own. Like, it, like actually doing proper charity as opposed to Bristow's, like, 
technically they're one point better than they were before. So the fact that I get 10 points, yeah. you know, it's still good. Of I mean, that's what Bristow has said, right? Is, oh, I'm yeah. going to treat them badly, but they're still very slightly better off. And that's his yeah, justification. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. I'm a good person because I improve their lives by 1%, even though I could do it by 50. Mm. Um, but it'd still feel icky to, to call Verona a collector in that context. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's no way for that not to be icky, right? Um, yeah, well, great, great work, Horseshoe Crab and Drake Marshall. Uh, if you, audience, dear audience, want to leave your pale predictions, there is a link down in our show notes down below where you can leave them. Uh, but before we go, we brought back predictions from a few weeks ago and bring back something else that we haven't done in a few weeks while we've been busy. Uh, it's a discussion question. Yeah, um, I'm just now realizing uh, I haven't actually run this one past you. So yeah, that's fine. I, I, Freestyle I, it, baby. It's cool. Um, yeah, I mean, like, this is more of a discussion prompt, uh, but it's pick a monster or creature from any piece of fiction and explain how you might bind it in pain. Mm-hmm. Um, like, obviously, we just had that whole big extra material on, like, brainstorming, binding stuff. Yep. So go nuts and do your own creative writing piece on, I don't know, binding a White Walker in A Song of Ice and Fire. I don't, I don't know. Interesting, interesting. Cool I like that, it. But... How would you bind... Um... What's the species that Yoda's from again? I don't know that that species has a name. How would you bind y- Yodos? Uh, that's it. Oh, yeah, like a Star Wars alien or anything. Any old fictional <laughs> monster. Go for it. You'd write a, a binding circle that's like written in good, proper grammar as oh, yeah. a negative <laughs> binding. That's, that's the antithesis. Um, actually, speaking of Yoda. This wasn't an intentional segue, but it's a great way for us to segue <laughs> into something that we're doing, I think, tomorrow or today, in less than 24 hours when this episode comes out. Um, yep. We are continuing uh, doing another live watch for the next episode of our bonus content show, The High Ground. Yeah, so this one's going to be a bit more public. I think usually the live watches are just for the people in the tier to, that can listen to the episodes, but... Um... We thought the Star Wars holiday special was important and, and precious enough that everyone should be able to experience it. Are we just um, watching... So th- our next episode is going to be covering two holiday specials. Are we just watching the Star Wars holiday... The old one first? Uh, the old one is all we have penciled in, but like depending on how everyone's feeling at the end, we might yeah. just do the other one then. Yeah, cool. We'll um, see how we go. Yeah, it depends. Like I think after 90 minutes of the original, everyone might just want to leave yeah so or i don't want to commit refresh your brain with something more you know like, yeah. akin with modern sensibilities i guess yeah go for a run yes uh, um yeah. It, yeah so in terms of whether we'll do the new lego one as well tomorrow we'll play that by year but um yeah that'll all sort of be happening through our discord uh so if if you're interested um you know come through the doof discord and, and we'll help you get set up yep we'll give you all the information you need just check in on the discord on the uh what channel is the right channel for that? Uh, just just pop into Doof General, I suppose. Yep, we'll figure it out. And we'll <laughs> send you the links. Yeah. All right, perfect. Um, cool. So, yeah, so check, out, check that out. Um, while you're on the Discord, why not just hang around and be a part of the community? If you're not a part of the Discord, what I should have said is, if you're not a part of the Discord, there's a great way to become a part of the Discord, which is supporting Doof Media on Patreon. Um, for $1 a month currently, you can... Uh, get in and and join the the best part of the community in my mind which is joining in with all the community events like the live watches and the streams we do for game club and all these other bits and pieces that are more or less entirely managed through the community <laughs> on discord yeah as as we're recording this it was about 24 hours ago that we uh we had a, a we 
we got a game club fight club together in yes. dark souls and we had yeah. we had a bunch of the game club people come on and um you know we all sort of had tournaments it was to very see who fun. was the best warrior in dark souls um so if you want to know yeah. who won that you got to get on the discord <laughs> or participate in stuff like that in the future yeah. or whatever yeah it could have been ruben and i who won it you, you won't know you'll never you, know you know <laughs> it, it wasn't, wasn't though <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yes <sighs> so uh yeah <laughs> uh head to the patreon uh, patreon.com forward slash doof media to to get in on that yes uh while you're on patreon don't forget to swing by patreon.com forward slash wildbo uh you, you know as of recording this you're, you're listening to like an episode that's over an hour and a half uh just on the topic of his stories so yeah so you've Switch, you've crossed the money, barrier yeah. where you should ethically support Wabo, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, cool. Um, all right. Well, I guess that's that. Check us out on the Discord, and we'll catch you next week for that Alexander interlude that's definitely coming. Yep, yep. An episode all on the Brownie interlude that's happening. Yep. Can't wait. <laughs> See you then. Bye.